0: of changing stations, you know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. When did Muslim Palestinians uh, that we hear so much about today come into existence? The Arab conquest of the Holy Land happened in 635 AD. So maybe you're thinking, over 1,300 years ago. You'd be wrong if you thought that. Muslims, who call themselves Palestinians, only began to happen after the Muslims, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, were decisively defeated by Israel in the 1967 Six-Day War. Not because any Muslims before then had thought of themselves as Palestinians, but for the reasons I'll tell you about shortly. Up until 1967, if you made the mistake of calling a Muslim Palestinian, you'd probably have been punched in the face. Up until then, the only people called Palestinians were the people whose land this had been going back to 1406 BC, the Jews. That should be the beginning and the ending of the argument that there was or is now such a thing as a Muslim Palestinian people. So let's see what the Muslims have been saying up until the Six Day War about who they were. Some Jews you slew and others you took captive. He, Allah, made you masters of their land, their houses and their goods, and of yet another land on which you had never set foot before. Truly, Allah has power over all things. Surah 33. I'm guessing that I should give credit to Muhammad to know what was what when he wrote that in the Quran, and he was saying quite clearly that the Muslims became the colonial masters of the Jewish homeland through conquest, as invaders. After the Muslims' defeat in the 1948 war with Israel, their positions became confused. Some Arab leaders demanded the return of the expelled refugees, mostly the Arab leaders had told them to leave their homes so that the invading Muslim armies could have clear fields of fire to kill the Jews, and then the Muslims could return home. At the same time, Emil Gouri, Secretary of the Arab Higher Command, called for the so-called refugees to be prevented from returning to their homes. In an interview for the Beirut Telegraph on 6 August 1948, he said, it is inconceivable that the refugees should be sent back to their homes while they are occupied by the Jews it would serve as a first step toward arab recognition of the state of israel and partition arab activist musa alami wrote in the middle east journal of october 1949 in an article entitled the lesson of palestine how can people struggle for their nation when most of them do not know the meaning of the word. The people are in great need of a myth to fill their consciousness and imagination. According to Alami, an introduction of the myth of nationality would create identity and self-respect, but it took a long time to think up the myth, and that was still not seen as essential anyway, until the massive Muslim defeat in the 1967 Six-Day War at the hands of the Israelis. Zuhir Moussin, the late military department head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and member of its Executive Council in March 1977, spoke about the solution that was seen to overcome this problem in the Dutch daily newspaper True. Yes, the existence of a separate Palestinian identity serves only tactical purposes. The founding of a Palestinian state is a new tool in the continuing battle against Israel. The myth of a Palestinian people has been sold to the West and doubtless many Muslims since then with breathtaking success. Since the 1920s, the Muslims have been at war with the Jews in the Holy Land. The comment of Zuhir Musin fits in with what al Bukhari al Jami al Sahih quoted Muhammad as saying The Prophet Muhammad said, War is deception. Saying that there have been Muslims in Palestine, Muslims who have identified themselves as Palestinians from time immemorial, fits in with this saying of Muhammad. It's the actual implementation of that policy of deception of the West. But the Muslims had not always seen their relations with the Jews like this. The Muslim chairman of the Syrian delegation at the Paris Peace Conference in February 1919, after the end of World War I, told the delegates... The only Arab domination since the conquest of 635 AD hardly lasted as such 22 years. I've said in many programs in this series that when I use the word Muslim, I'm using it because the number of ethnic Arabs is small. But the overwhelming majority of people in this part of the world are Muslims. What happened generally during the Arab conquests in the early years of the rise of Islam was that the majority of the people who lived in the lands the Muslims conquered became absorbed into a shared Muslim religion and culture. The Jews have never done that. The Jews have always been Jews. They stuck out like a sore thumb in the compliant, adaptive environment. They would not give up their faith or their identity. Dennis Prager, in his book Deuteronomy, says, The Jews' belief that they are God's chosen people has kept them alive as a distinct people, no matter how much suffering Jews have endured solely for being Jews. And even though remaining a Jew always implied the possibility of bequeathing terrible suffering to one's children, Jews remained Jews, because they believed God had chosen them. The Muslims had different ideas of what the area of modern Israel should be called and how it should be treated. None of them remotely suggested that this area had ever been a separate and distinct country of Palestine. The Muslims in the British-Palestinian mandate were either members of a pan-Arab nation as a community of Muslims. In 1919, the opening article of a 1919 Arab Covenant proposed by the Arab Congress in Jerusalem, stated that the Arab lands are a complete and indivisible whole and the divisions of whatever nature to which they have been subjected are not approved nor recognized by the Arab nation. In 1951, the Ba'ath Party, later most infamously associated with the murderous regime of Saddam Hussein, stated in its constitution the Arabs form one nation. This nation has the natural right to live in a single state and to be free to direct its own identity, to gather all the Arabs in a single, independent Arab state. This is the view of the most fundamental Muslims. That was what ISIS was all about: the Muslim world or Ummah. After World War One, when an independent Arab state and its component parts were being discussed, the term Greater Syria was suggested as including the Palestinian Mandate. It would include the Fertile Crescent and its desert hinterland. As I said, Palestine was, under the Ottoman Empire, a part of that Muslim administrative region called Syria. So in 1919, the General Syrian Congress had the opposite view to the Arab Congress in Jerusalem. The Syrian Congress had been eager to realise their plans for what was to happen after the end of the rule by the European colonial powers by having a new country of Syria for the Muslims, including those living in what was soon to be the British-Palestinian mandate. They announced, We ask that there should be no separation of the southern part of Syria, known as Palestine. The Arab historian George Antonius defined Palestine in 1939 as part of the whole of the country of that name Syria, which is now split up into mandated territories. Marie Serkin, in her book, Palestinian Nationalism, Its Development and Goal, recorded that Haj Amin al-Husseini, the notorious Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, originally opposed the Palestinian mandate because it separated Palestine from Syria. In 1956, a Saudi Arabian United Nations delegate emphatically stated that it is common knowledge that Palestine is nothing but southern Syria. In 1974, Syria's President Assad, although he was a Palestinian Liberation Organization supporter, incorporated both claims in this remarkable definition. Palestine is not only a part of our Arab homeland, but a basic part of southern Syria. You can clearly see in this the content of the statement at the beginning of the program by Zuhair Musin, just a few years later in 1977, The claims about Palestinians has been the world's greatest marketing ploy, to pull on the ever so yearning heartstrings of the left and to give them the obvious target for their anti-Semitism. The British Palestine Royal Commission report of 1937 said, in the 12 centuries or more that have passed since the Arab conquest, Palestine has virtually dropped out of history. In economics, as in politics, Palestine lay outside the mainstream of the world's life. In the realm of thought, in science or in letters, it made no contribution to modern civilization. In the 12 centuries of the Arab presence in Palestine, before the return of the Jews from the 1880s, the Arabs built only one single new town, Ramla. And to be honest, Ramla was nothing to write home about, as in 1816, J.S. Buckingham wrote in his book, Travels in Palestine. He described Jaffa as a poor village, and Ramlay as a place whereas throughout the greater portion of Palestine, the ruined portion seemed more extensive than that which was inhabited. These obvious facts moved Sir George Adam Smith author of The Historical Geography of the Holy Land, to write in 1891, "...nor is there any indigenous civilization in Palestine that could take the place of the Turkish, except that of the Jews, who have given to Palestine anything it ever had of value to the world." I've already covered the story of what a wasteland the Holy Land was for the whole of the time from the Arab conquest until the Jews started to migrate there from Europe and other Muslim countries to join the Jews that had always been living there, taking their connection with this land back 2,500 years. 1,900 years before the first Arab conquerors turned up. Yasser Arafat had told the UN... The Jewish invasion began in 1881. Palestine was then a verdant area, inhabited mainly by an Arab people, in the course of building its life and dynamically enriching its indigenous culture. But that wasn't true. Palestine had been a wasteland until the Jews began arriving and farming. It wasn't a verdant, green area and building one new town in 1,200 years doesn't tell the story of a frenzied, vibrant culture before the Jewish settlement got underway. I'm not saying Yes Arafat was lying about what he said. I couldn't possibly suggest that. But you might be able to make up your own mind on the matter. When the world leaders at Versailles were deciding what was to happen in the Middle East, and they weighed the question of competing Jewish and Muslim claims, They were justifiably not concerned with any Palestinian national claim, because there was no recognised area of Palestine. No Arab leader at Versailles, or in Palestine for that matter, came forward to present such a claim. The head of the Muslim delegation at the Versailles Peace Talks, headed by Faisal, son of the Sharif of Mecca, and later to become King Faisal of Iraq, was preoccupied with securing independence for an Arab state that they envisaged would include present-day Syria, Iraq and the Arabian Peninsula. Those Muslims, back in those days, saw the Zionists as potentially useful allies. In January 1919, a month before the opening of the Versailles Conference, Faisal signed an agreement with Chaim Weissman that I have talked about in an earlier program, calling for the closest possible collaboration between the Jewish and Arab peoples in the development of the Arab state and Palestine, and stating that the Constitution of Palestine should afford the fullest guarantees for carrying into effect the British government's Balfour Declaration of 2nd November 1917, and that all necessary measures shall be taken to encourage and stimulate immigration of Jews into Palestine on a large scale. In return, the Zionist organization agreed to use its best endeavors to assist the Arab state in providing the means for developing the natural resources and economic possibilities thereof. The Arab and Jewish peoples also undertook to Act in complete accord before the Peace Congress. In March 1919, Faisal wrote to Felix Frankfurter, a member of the American delegation to the Peace Talks, and said, Our deputation here in Paris is fully acquainted with the proposals submitted yesterday by the Zionist organization to the Peace Conference, and we regard them as moderate and proper. We will wish the Jews a hearty welcome home. The Versailles signatories granted the mandate of Palestine to Britain at the San Remo conference held in April 1920 after agitators from Damascus inspired violent outbreaks in Jerusalem in which six Jews were beaten to death and hundreds more were wounded. The Muslim rioters in the British mandate of Palestine demanded the incorporation of Palestine into an independent Syria. No one talked about a separate state of Palestine for the Muslims. But actions speak louder than words. So let me tell you what happened to two areas that we're told today are part of the historic Muslim country known as Palestine, a verdant green land dynamically enriching its indigenous culture before those damned Jews showed up. The Gaza Strip and the West Bank. First, the West Bank. There's a lot of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth by the Muslims, and especially by the left all around the world, about how appallingly the Palestinians on the West Bank have been treated. Maybe the Jews could be nicer and give that to them. So let's go back to basics. The lands owned by the Muslims across North Africa and the Middle East contain just over 14 million square kilometres. The 1967 State of Israel had just under 27,000 square kilometers. That's quite a difference. Remember too that on 16 September 1922, 83% of the Jewish homeland territory proposed in the Balfour Declaration was given to Abdullah by Winston Churchill. So what I'm calling Jewish territory in this program is only the rump 17% that was left to them of the original proposal. Uh, so you'd think that the Muslims should have been pretty happy with their lion's share of the Jewish homeland that they had gotten from the start. You also need to know that in November 1947, the United Nations recommended the petition of what was then being called Western Palestine, today Israel, into two states, a Jewish state and a Muslim state. So after losing 83% of the land promised to the Jews for their home, now the United Nations was offering the Muslims a further large chunk of the promised Jewish homeland to the Muslims. This land for the Muslims included what we now know as the West Bank. Maybe you'll be surprised to hear that the Arab world, without needing to discuss this or think more about it, just flat out rejected that offer. P.J. Vatikiotis, in his 1978 book, Nasser and His Generation, captured the world view of the Muslims then and now. He said that Israel was a Jewish state amidst what the Arabs considered their own exclusive environment or milieu, the Arab region. The Arabs just wanted the Jewish state completely gone. That was the only deal they would agree to. So obviously... The United Nations offer of two states, one for them and one for the Jews, wasn't remotely attractive because it would still leave a Jewish state in the middle of all of their land, from the Atlantic to the Gulf. Well, in this case, the land the Arabs had violently taken off the Jews in 635 AD. No matter how small this new UN proposed Jewish rump state would be, it would still be there and it would still be too big. The Muslims decided that they would bite their time. When the Jewish state became independent, they'd wipe it from the face of the earth. Then there would be no Jewish state, and everyone would be happy. Well, everyone whose views mattered, and that didn't include the Jews. As I told you in episode one of this series, at 8pm on the day that the state of Israel became independent, The Egyptians bombed Tel Aviv, and then it was on for young and old. In the course of the fighting at that time, the Muslims took from the Jews part of their territory, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which they then kept for the next 18 years. First, I'm going to talk about the West Bank. The West Bank was seized by the Kingdom of Transjordan in the 1948 war. The state was called Transjordan at this time because its boundary was the Jordan River. It marked the western boundary of Transjordan. It was only on one side of the Jordan River. Transjordan itself was part of the Jewish Holy Land. It had been conquered by the Arabs in 635 AD and had remained firmly in Muslim hands until 1922, when the British Mandate was about to come into existence. Transjordan was then given away by Winston Churchill to the Muslims. In 1948, when Israel became a state, the Muslim states surrounding Israel, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon and Iraq invaded, joined by a contingent from Saudi Arabia. By the time of the ceasefire in 1949, the West Bank had been taken off Israel by Transjordan, which not long after changed its own name to Jordan, because now it was on both sides of the Jordan River, and the Gaza Strip was taken and occupied off Israel by Egypt. The West Bank at this time was in the same appallingly run-down condition that the rest of the Holy Land had been in after 1,200 years of Muslim rule. As I talked about in my last program, God had promised that the Holy Land would suffer while it wasn't occupied by the Jews, and he was true to his promise. When Transjordan seized the West Bank in 1948, the land was almost entirely empty, outside of the small urban centres such as Shechem, Nablus, Hebron, Ramallah and Bethlehem. There was a scattering of villages along the crude roads connecting them. There were the occasional Bedouin nomads who would come and go. They didn't count towards the population of the West Bank. The Trans-Jordanian government took direct control of most of the open space and for the 19 years of Jordanian control made virtually no effort to develop it. King Hussein's policy was to develop only the East Bank. The Jordanians moved what little industry that there had been on the West Bank before 1948 across to the other side of the Jordan River. The Jews were forbidden to live on the West Bank, The Muslims demand that the Jews share. 20% of current-day Israel are Muslims. But 0% of the Muslim countries in the Middle East are Jewish. Those states are mostly what the Nazis would have called Judenrein, free of Jews. The population density of the land making up the West Bank reflected how godforsaken this land was. 150 people per square kilometre. Compare that to, say, 6,700 per square kilometre in Tel Aviv. The population density in the West Bank was equivalent not to that of the suburban areas outside, say, New York, London or Paris, but to rural regions beyond the metropolitan belt of those cities. Four Arab cities, I've already mentioned, were located along the crest of the mountains, together with East Jerusalem which the Jordanians had seized and held onto until 1967. And those city dwellers on the West Bank made up the bulk of the Muslim population. Only a small fraction of the West Bank land was inhabited. The rest remained almost totally vacant. Benjamin Netanyahu, in his book A Durable Peace, wrote, After years of looking at television shots from refugee districts, The average viewer in the West cannot help believing that Judea and Samaria are one large, squalid, teeming cluster of shanties packed one on top of the next all the way from Tel Aviv to Jericho. The myth is readily punctured by a one-hour outing driving from Tel Aviv due east toward the Jordan River. One sees mountain after mountain after mountain covered with nothing. No Arabs, no Jews, no trees, nothing. When, here and there, one finally comes to an Arab village or two, or a Jewish village or two, they are followed by yet more nothing. To the unaided eye, it is instantly obvious that entire cities can be built here without taking anything away from anyone. Now, this seizure of part of the country of what the Muslims call Palestine was obviously good news for the Palestinians, as Yasser Arafat so movingly captured the plight of their much-beloved homeland, inhabited mainly by an Arab people in the course of building its life and dynamically enriching its indigenous culture. Now, they would resume living their rich and unique Palestinian life. You would think. But you'd be wrong given all of the enormous outpouring of feeling about the people of Palestine living as refugees in those pathetic camps in Muslim countries that haven't welcomed them in as citizens, the Jordanians didn't give the West Bank to the Palestinians. They annexed it for themselves. Israeli territory that had been seized from the Jews in 1948 to 1949 was clearly land which the Jordanians couldn't legally seize. And in any event, it was land that we're told belongs to the Palestinians, not to them. Today, there's always a great shout when the Israelis put settlements in this empty land of the West Bank, occupying some of it. But no one anywhere in the world said boo about the whole of the West Bank being swiped from the poor Palestinians by Jordan. None of the Muslim countries that are still continually at least grumbling about Israel taking land off the good Muslim people of Palestine had a thing to say about this. Not even the Palestinian people complained. What's going on? The English, still seemingly trying to win over the Muslims, as they'd been trying to do without any success for many decades, were still undeterred and recognised the illegal seizure of the West Bank by the Jordanians. Pakistan, a Muslim country, recognised this illegal seizure as well but not one other country in the world did. I'm hoping that the Egyptians were much more compassionate to the heartbroken, homeless Palestinian people after they had gotten a hold of Gaza. But you'll have to listen to the next program to learn what happened there. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum borrowing the Danish Kaldsberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E, also available on the same podcast sites.